Our scripture reading today comes from John 5, 1 through 16. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know that it was Jesus. Excuse me. (laughs) Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Leeward campus. Uh, All these friendly faces, those who are joining us online, welcome. We're really glad you're here this morning. My name is Tom. So recently, Liz, my bride, and I had the opportunity to join a group of other Leewood campus members uh, for an amazing conference. Uh, This conference is part of our ministry partner, Elam, which serves the global church in the Persian region. Every time I'm next to someone in the persecuted church globally, those who have been, many of those, tortured and imprisoned for their faith, it's humbling and it's inspiring. But I'm also reminded very freshly that some of the most evil things done in the world to image bearers of God are motivated by misguided religious devotion. Under the banner of devotion to a deity or a religious system, religiously blinded persons often do the most unimaginable things to other image bearers of God. The 17th century Christian French philosopher and physicist Blaise Pascal put it well when he said, people never do evil so willingly than in the name of God. Now, it's also tragically true, of course, that people do evil very willingly in the name of atheistic ideologies. But our biblical text this morning, here we are confronted with the blinding nature of misguided religious devotion. What does religious misguided devotion look like and why is it so perilous to your life and to mine? This is the question that our text this morning addresses. And if you want to join with your Bible, if you have it handy, turn to the New Testament book, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Now, as a church family, across our campus, we are exploring this masterpiece of masterpieces. 
I know I often say that when it comes to the holy text of scripture, but this text, do you realize the Gospel of John has been translated to more, almost every virtual language in human history. More people have read this than any other book by far. With that in mind, it grabs us with a higher level of awe and respect as we enter this text. The Gospel of John emphasizes explicitly in chapter 20, further down the line, the writer John's literary purpose. He explicitly tells us that, and this is rather unusual in the New Testament canon. John chapter 20, Paul says, so you don't, or John says, sorry, John says, so you don't miss it. So this is why I'm writing the book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose throughout the entire book is that we may, as readers, embrace a true and transforming, life-changing, intimate faith in Jesus as Messiah. And to do this, John will brilliantly, in a literary form, continually to contrast true faith with faulty faith. And so far in the Gospel of John, we have seen this literary device. Jesus has conversations with a religious rabbi, a Samaritan woman, and last week with a government royal official. So now we come to chapter 5. Once again, we see this contrast, and we see misguided faith on full display for us. Misguided faith takes two forms. The idea here is that religious benefits and religious rules become more important than a relationship with God. So keep that in mind. Now, as we enter this chapter, John's narrative structure is built around two literary frames. The first frame is a remarkable story, and it's highlighted in verses 1 through 9 as you're following along. Frame 2, on the heels of that, is the two revealing responses, which is the crescendo, the literary crescendo, in verses 10 through 16 of this text. So we have a remarkable story, two revealing responses. First, the remarkable story. John begins his historical setting giving us the context. Jesus and his disciples, John included, most likely walking right next to Jesus, are walking together in the old city of Jerusalem. It is a Jewish feast, perhaps Passover. We don't know for sure, but we do know that the city is bustling with people, so feel that. Incredible number of people, like ants, running around. But in the midst of that, one surprising person stands out. John's literary lens focuses on him, and he doesn't tell us his name, which is fabulous and fascinating and intentional. He was among a group of people who were broken, physically suffering blindness and lameness. You see that, or paralysis. And daily they gathered around this beautiful section of the old city of Jerusalem. It is called, because of the pool, Bethsaida, or Bethsaida, which in its original language means the pool of outpouring or mercy. I like that mercy edge there as the story unfolds. Now John tells us this guy has been an invalid for 38 years. This is very important to John, 38 years. Bethsaida was where he had hung out most likely all his life or at least most of his life. And John wants us as readers, thoughtful readers, to grasp that this guy was a fixture in the old city of Jerusalem. John and Jesus, this is not their first time in Jerusalem, of course, and we are very confident that they had encountered this guy before. How could you miss him? Going in and out of this gate, right, in the strategic, heavily trafficked area near the temple, 
You encountered this guy if you were in Jerusalem. When I read this story and I enter into my own life, I think of two years I spent at the University of Kansas, go Rock Chalk, by the way, Rock Chalk Jayhawks today. Um, I know some of you are not fans, that's okay. Uh, big day for the Rock Chalk Jayhawks, but I remember two years uh, at the University of Kansas serving with a parachurch ministry. And uh, at, the, at the university, I remember a guy who was affectionately called, I never knew his name, he was called the Tan Man. Now, he was positioned in a very highly trafficked place. He was called the Tan Man because he often had his shirt off, even in the coldest weather, getting the rays. So he just hung out at a place called Westco Beach, which was the intersection of students uh, all across the campus. In other words, if you were a part of the KU campus, you knew the Tan Man. You saw him every day. He was a fixture there. This is what John says to us. This lame man was the tan man of first century Jerusalem. Okay? You got it? So John now describes, once he has our eyes on that lame man, he now gives us this incredible encounter Jesus has with the lame man in verse 6. So follow along. When Jesus came and saw him lying there, and again, no, no doubt he recognized him from before, and knew that he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? <laughs> now, when we stop and think about this question that John highlights, this is a rather intriguing question, isn't it not? I mean, this guy had been an invalid for 38 years, for Pete's sakes. Why ask him this very obvious question? And why does John emphasize this so much? Of course, this lame man whose lifeless limbs, you know, he wanted to be healed, right? He wanted to feel life in his limbs. Yet something's probably going on more here than we may at first grasp in our English text. And indeed, that's true. In the original Koine Greek language, the translation of this word healed in English is important for us to understand. The first century readers would have picked up on this. There's a nuance here. It's often used throughout the New Testament to describe not just physical healing, but broader healing. So I think John's specific word choice, there's another specific word choice for just physical healing in Greek. He's thinking more than just this guy's physical well-being. I think we have a pretty good confidence of that. Jesus is thinking of comprehensive wholeness, well-being of this guy that's broken body, soul, and spirit. Now, if you uh, do crazy things like pastors do and teachers do, you look at other translations throughout Scripture, English translations, and I have to say, even though we use this translation often, it's a very good one, uh, I want to suggest that this is not the best translation here. The NIV and CSB, other translations, put the question this way, do you want to get well? And I don't remember last time I said this, but the King James Version, that old version, right, uh, actually gets the best translation, in my opinion. It says, do you want to be made whole? I think that's better here. Hearing Jesus' question, you'll notice in the story, the layman just hears one tone, one pitch of the tone, one piece of his brokenness, one dimension. That's his physical brokenness. And he quickly informs Jesus, I like that, of his plight. And it's built on a, most likely a superstitious idea of the pool, certain times of the year, bringing healing powers. But to us, in the 21st century, this is like, what? It's a bit out there, don't you think? 
It'd be like a modern day religious charlatan, or charlatan, like a lot of them, there's a lot of those out there, who offer desperate people false hope built on superstition and amazing claims and testimonials, right? So Jesus, fascinating, he seems to completely ignore this. Do you see it in the text? He just could kind of just punts on that. But he says to this guy who's been 38 years, get up, take up literally your mat and walk. Now put yourself in his sandals. Can you imagine after 38 years what this guy felt as his lifeless limbs suddenly become alive and energized and surging strength in his legs? There's a good possibility he never walked. The exhilaration of being able to stand, to walk, the one who has never walked in at least 38 years and may never, most likely, ever experience the joy of walking. Now, not only walks, he grabs his mat, puts it on his shoulder. Now, this is an amazing sign, and if you know the Gospel of John, there's seven signs that kind of guide us. But it's fascinating here, unlike many of the signs, that John the writer doesn't dwell on it. You see that? His literary spotlight focuses on the responses to the healing. That's where his focus is. And there are two of them, two revealing responses. In verses 10 through 16, we see these two responses. And they both reveal different aspects of misguided faith. In verse 9, let's first look at the healed man's response. We often miss this. John tells us this guy simply picks up his mat and walks away. There is no indication, and the silence is deafening here in the narrative, that he wants to even get to know the, he, the one who healed him. Jesus, in the text, John says, seems to have walked away a bit. Quietly, it would seem, reading between the lines. And you would think, any healed person, like you or me, like if I was healed, I would rush after the one who healed me. Uh-uh. And in verse 14, we are actually told it's not the blind or the lame man that seeks Jesus. Jesus seeks him out in the temple. And he says to him, sin no more, that worse may happen to you. Now that text is pulled out of context and misinterpreted. Let me just simply say, Jesus is not asserting there's some kind of efficient cause here between his sin and his brokenness, okay? The point is, is that Jesus is focusing on comprehensive wholeness. And this, this guy doesn't even seem to be interested in what Jesus has to say. Do you see that? This is stunning. This is stunning. And in verse 11, again, if you follow along, when the healed man is confronted by the religious authorities, you know they found out right away, this guy was a fixture. He's starting to walk. No, he walked. He's carrying his mat. Everybody knows the news travels all through the old city of Jerusalem like that. So these religious leaders find him, of course. He couldn't wasn't hard to find. And they confront him. And you'll notice, because he's doing this on the Sabbath, the lame man has a very lame response. He's quite eager to throw Jesus under the bus, so to speak. He says, and literally the text says, the man who healed me, that man, that's the that man, he said to me, take up my mat and walk. Is that unbelievable? He's just been healed. Do you feel this sense of like, who is this guy? It's jaw-dropping. It's astonishing. And there's not even a hint, the smallest hint in the text, that the healed man <laughs> expresses any gratitude to Jesus. 
even though miraculously healed, even though sought out later by Jesus and invited to embrace faith in him and find true wholeness, he is not interested. He's not interested in Jesus, putting his faith in Jesus, or following Jesus. And in fact, if you look at verse 15, it suggests that he seeks to ingratiate himself to the religious authorities, kind of like a tattletale. Hmm. The ungrateful and interested healed man embodies a faulty, misguided faith. I would call it an opportunistic faith. His heart is set on getting some religious benefits that Jesus might bring to him, and in this case, physical healing, of course, but he is not interested, at least in pursuing a relationship with Jesus. Here's the point. John wants to see it. He wants us to see it. The healed lame man is more than willing to receive from Jesus and not receive Jesus at all. A lame man's lame response speaks volumes to us today. And that is that our faith is misguided when religious benefits are more important than a relationship with Jesus. Isn't that true? It's easy for you and me to embrace a misguided religious faith founded in a religious consumer mentality. Christian faith for us is desirable as long as it's helpful to us. It's desirable when it helps us make friendships or the religious services we Attend provides a good feeling or a sense of joy in our life. It's desirable when it gives us great business contacts and networking or helps kid, our kids or teenagers make better choices and find better friends. Now hear me carefully. Making good friends and experiencing community and having business contacts are good things. Often really good things that are the outworking of authentic faith and authentic community. Asking our Heavenly Father for the desires of our hearts and for things we need is a good thing, done with the right motivation. But sometimes our fair-weather faith proves hauntingly shallow when life is hard, when we face suffering, and when we face personal rejection. How does our faith hold up when life has us down? You know that when we experience loss and grief and loneliness, when prayers go unanswered year after year, when we experience hurt from other Christians or Christian leaders, how does our faith hold up then? Are we quick to throw in the towel? Become unbelieving cynics? Let me ask you a couple thoughts, or have a couple thoughts for reflection this week. I would encourage you, if you're doing the Form.Life journal, to write this question for reflection. What is the true heart motive for my Christian faith? And reflect on that this week. Is it, first and foremost, knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus, deepening my intimacy with Jesus, or is it really about getting some things from Jesus? Do I want Jesus or just what Jesus Am I experiencing the manifest presence of Jesus in my daily Monday life where I live, work, and play? Is God somehow become more of a cosmic vending machine that I want stuff from or more of a loving Heavenly Father I so deeply long to know more fully? John wants us to know our faith is misguided and faulty 
when religious benefits are much more important than a relationship with Jesus. But notice the second truth. It is also misguided when religious rules are more important than a relationship with Jesus. This is the inconvenient truth this story builds to. And we see embodied in the second response of the religious leaders and the reaction to the healed lame man. Do you notice in the text how John showcases for us in verses 10 through 16 how, and I also say it, these religious folks come unglued. It's like they lose their mind. Religious leaders quickly find this guy, he wasn't hard to find, confront the lame man who's walking around carrying the mat on his shoulders. Think for me for a moment, with what is really happening here? Rather than any sense of decency or loving God or loving your neighbor, think of their reaction. Rather than rejoice with this guy who's never been able to use his limbs or walk for 38 years, they focus on what his hands are carrying. And the healed man is anything but stellar here. Clearly, John wants us to know that. Quickly, the healed man passes the buck, right? That man's the one that did it. Now, let's remember what John says in verse 9 earlier. It is the Sabbath day. He introduces that right in the middle of his story. It is the Sabbath day. So that raises the question, what is the big deal about the Sabbath? Perhaps this word Sabbath means a little to you, or you may think of Sunday or something like that, or church. The Sabbath is a Hebrew word that basically means to rest. It actually is built into the very fabric of original creation design, described for us in Genesis, the first book in the Old Testament. After original creation, before sin and death entered and disintegrated the world, God's good world, God himself, in all his triune glory, rested on the seventh day. The importance of six days of work and one day of rest is anchored, not only in the gracious rhythm of creation design, but it is reinforced in the giving of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment sets apart the seventh day of the week. As an essential part of the Sabbath day, it was called to rest and not to work. So these religious leaders who love the Old Testament get part of that story right. Sabbath was important. The problem, however, was that God's covenant people lost sight of the big picture of Sabbath, and they corrupted it. They made the Sabbath adherents become a bunch of, I don't know how best to say it when you read the literature, soul-suffocating religious rules to the point of virtual absurdity. In other words, instead of the Sabbath pointing to the pursuit of a growing intimacy with God, it became a soul-suffocating yoke of works righteousness seeking meritous favor with God. Rather than a day, a restful day of delight, it became 24 hours of prideful, self-righteous, nitpicky drudgery. They lost sight of the forest for the trees, so to speak, right? And the Sabbath became a human-centered end in itself. And the many related religious rules and devotion to them became blindingly ultimate and blatantly idolatrous. And here we have one of the greatest dangers 
of misguided faith and one of the greatest ironies. And that is when religious systems and human-made religious rules that actually make claims of enlightenment actually become blinding forms of idolatry. This we will see throughout the Gospel of John. And John points out here in chapter 5 that an idolatrous Sabbath is the turning point in the story of these religious leaders. With blinded eyes and hardened hearts, they're not going to reject Jesus for being a Sabbath breaker and his claims of deity for doing so. We're going to see more of that. They cling to their idolatrous Sabbath rules, and they will not only persecute Jesus, they will one day have him nailed to the cross. Remember John's prologue in chapter 1, verse 11. John tells us the eternal Logos, that's Jesus the Messiah, became flesh. And he's unimaginably rejected by his own people. John 1.11, John says, he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That tragic assertion is embodied right here in John 5, and will be all the way through the book. It's important for us to grasp that the Sabbath was never instituted by God to be nearly and merely another rule for God's people to keep. Rather, it was a gracious gift. It was embedded in creation and affirmed in redemption for God's people to gain just an appetizer, a tasty appetizer of the future Sabbath rest one day in the new heavens and new earth. In many ways, you just study scripture, whatever background you have, the Sabbath and its idea can be seen as a beautiful and gracious thread of narrative continuity woven through the entire Bible. It's one of the connecting pieces. And building into our lives one day of rest each week is an important rhythm for our spiritual formation and well-being. And for many of us, that will be Sunday, but not in a legalistic, meritorious way. Now, isn't it easy for us when we step back from our cultural location and time to be quick to kind of point judgmental fingers at how could these guys be so blind? How could these religious leaders be so blind in their misguided devotion over Sabbath rules, for goodness sakes? But what about you and me? There are few more perilous things that can get me off track and you off track on the path of misguided faith and when religious rules begin to hinder our relationship with God. It's easy for us to be dumbfounded how they could be so blind, but what about us? How is it possible to not rejoice in this man's healing, but instead be infuriated, and that's the proper word, infuriated for Jesus to break the Sabbath? But let me ask each one of us, are there religious traditions, religious rules, preferences, or particular religious liturgies that actually have become deceptive, idolatrous substitutions for deeper intimacy with Jesus in your life and mine. Even good things, some of the best things, can become idolatrous, ultimate things. This is the subtlety I think the Apostle Paul is getting at. Remember, he killed people before he came to Christ out of misguided religious devotion. Think about that. He writes to the Corinthian church a text that I'd love for you to memorize because I think it's so important, 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says to the Corinthian believers, because he knows it in his own life, I'm afraid for you. 
Paul very seldom says that. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your thoughts or your minds will be led away from a simple, not simplistic, a simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So what about us? Is our devoted religiosity blinding us? Our preferences? From a simple and pure devotion to Jesus. Now, a growing biblical literacy is vital for our spiritual formation. But it is very possible and often very observable to have tucked a great deal of Bible information and theological truths in our brains and have hearts far from Jesus. Far from him. A blinding, misguided religious devotion is often fueled by an excessive certainty around a particular systematic theology or denominational tribe. This blinding myth of certainty often becomes a prideful barrier to your need and my need for increasing spiritual formation in Christ-likeness and for growing in our love for others, particularly other followers of Jesus who may see some doctrinal differences or a different tribe. Let me ask you, is the greatest desire and focus of your life pursuing a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus? Or have you subtly, blindedly embraced a misguided faith? Take a step back with me for a moment. Would you to consider? Have you bought into a misguided faith that really is motivated by religious benefits or shrouded by religious rules instead of making the passion of your heart and life a growing intimacy with Jesus? One of the ways we avoid a misguided, faulty faith is to embrace the experience of true Sabbath rest in Jesus. How do we do that? Let me remind you of a couple things. Sabbath is not, first and foremost, a day we set aside each week, as good and important as that is, but a person we deeply know and are deeply known by. The Sabbath ultimately points us to a person, the person of Jesus, who is Lord of of Sabbath. The New Testament writer Hebrews reminds us Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He alone is. Not only ours, friends, but Sabbath rest truly in him can bring healing and wholeness to those we love so much in our lives. Because of his atoning death on the cross, his death-defying resurrection, true Sabbath rest can be experienced. A joyful relationship with Jesus where we are fully known, where we experience a deepening intimacy that brings true wholeness to our broken lives. This is the good news of the gospel, of forgiveness from sin and the gracious gift of new life. It is forever now extended to all who, in repentance and faith, trust Jesus as their Messiah, their personal Lord and Savior. Entering his yoke of a Sabbath rest as his apprentices, we learn from him how to live our lives like he would if he were us, and we find true rest. May we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Recognize in fresh ways with discernment the grave peril of misguided faith 
And may each of us, in his grace, enter true rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it speaks to the depths of the motivation of our hearts. Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us. Free us from misguided faith and draw us to a simple and pure devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.